Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. This is part one of a two-part podcast. Okay, let's go on. All right, so um, we had a, our last podcast, we said something like, uh, uh, oh, and then we're going to start recording right away. And then we found out that Toby Hemingway was in hospice. And um, there was a crowdfunding thing to pay for his hospice care. And so we put all of our energy into telling people about that. I believe it ended up raising $40,000 for Toby. Um, Unfortunately, he died within like uh, 18 hours of us finding out about him being in hospice care. But... By the but about six hours after we started putting the word out, then I think that they had raised about twenty thousand dollars, and he did. He was awake and alert, and he saw it. And apparently, he was um, touched by all everyone's expressing their appreciation of Toby, uh, Toby Hemingway, the author of Gaia's Garden and Permaculture City. Yes. The new one. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and of course, you know, lots of presentations. And the thing that, that upsets me the most about it is, is that I feel like with each year, Toby's message was becoming more and more profound. And I, I kind of feel like, um, he, with every year, he endorses more of what I'm saying. And, and I'm kind of thinking that in, in six years, that everything I'm saying now would be, you know, well past that. And, th- and then what is he going to then go on about? Like, what's going to be his next? And I've got, I can pontificate on what that might be. But, um, I mean, Toby and I had a lot of conversations. In fact, I, I, in the thread that we have about Toby, I, I, um, I shared our last email exchange, which I thought had a lot of important important stuff in it. Right. And a lot of people are doing tributes about Toby, and there will be a memorial service for a lot of people who knew him in the California area. Um, so, you know, there's tributes. Uh, Diego Footer is, is putting together one with his Permaculture Voices site. Uh, Permaculture Magazine North America is putting together a tribute. And, of course, we have the thread on Permies, which serves as a tribute and a conversation. Um, and I'm sure there's many, many more that I'm not aware of and, and, and won't be listing here. But, um yeah, what an epic contribution to permaculture, Toby. So we have has made. We have at least two podcasts that I recorded with Toby, 
Um, and, and they may have been divided up into part one, part two kind of stuff. Um, and then of course you and I have a whole bunch of podcasts where we're reviewing Gaia's garden, right. like a chapter at a time. And we, we have one more chapter to go I to know. finish that. And I so know. now we really should finish that. Yeah. But, Part of the conversation I had with Toby was is that Joss and I are going to finish that, mm-hmm. and would you like to do a podcast where you review our review? Yeah. And he said that would be great. He wants to do that, and and he's listened to the podcasts. He heard what we said. Yeah. So um, I so there's that. But okay, so then that wrapped up. Yeah. Oh, you have and more? he's in YouTube videos of yours too. Oh, right. He's in yeah. YouTube videos, and he's got a bunch of his own YouTube videos, which yeah. are very good. Yeah. Um. So. But then we kind of got to the point where, okay, that's all wrapped up. Let's, let's record this podcast. And the podcast we're recording today, solving global problems in your own backyard. I mean, I, I kind of feel like this is a critical one because I kind of feel like of all the things we've said, the solutions are simple. They're very obvious. I mean, with right. all these little bits and bobs, I mean, I'm not doing anything all that profound. It's, it's like these things are really quite simple and basic. And I think, obvious and apparently we need something that kind of glues it all together and i think that the what we've got today does that so we're going to so it's like it's really important this is next we've got to do it now and then something happened on permies and it's like there's this thread from six months ago and damn it john john polk had like done something and he hardly ever makes a mistake and it's like so i better if if I see something that's off and John Polk did it, John Polk, one of one of the admins that we've had out at Permies for uh, five years, six years, right? And he's just, he's just a machine. He just gets it all done, Whoa. and he does such an excellent job. And so he was a moderator, and he prevented spam. Um, like that's what he was epic awesome at is preventing the spam and and identifying spam deleting spam blocking spam knowing how people would use different ip addresses and knowing all the ins and outs of how spammers work and man he was efficient and awesome at it so there's this thread from six months ago he did something and the fact when i when i saw that it was my my analysis was that's all fucked up i gotta go talk to john and but i didn't do anything about it because i thought well, it's probably going to turn out to be that there's something I didn't know, and so I better go find out. And and so I'm gonna, so I'm trying to, John, John, damn it, John. And so um, then I finally find out why he's not replying. Well, I told you, wait a minute, I think he's really, really sick. He he replied in a forum that said he had to go to the hospital with pneumonia. Yeah, but he replied to something else after that. So yeah. it's like he's you know And I said <laughs> I said, you know, Paul, let's find out, you know, if he's okay and if he has anybody taking care of him and so, Right. And we'd we'd heard that he'd moved to Spokane, so we're like gearing up to go find him in Spokane, but of course Spokane's a pretty big place. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. Where is he? So we're we're like taking all the steps to go and like find him and make sure he's alright. And then when we when then we finally get the real story and that is that no he's over in Everett, which is north of Seattle. He hadn't so quite moved to Spokane. So yeah, he hadn't finished his move to Spokane, even though he changed all of his stuff to say he's in Spokane now. 
and he was in hospice care. And it's like, wow, what is with hospice this month? Jeez. Yeah. And um, so Toby Hemingway died on December 20th, and John Polk died on December 25th. The odd thing is, is that on, I think on December 25th, like in the wee hours of the morning, it was. Yeah. John posted the following. He he his his kids were saying that he can't really type because his fingers shake so much, but he just demanded, he insisted on typing. Maybe there's another spammer out there, and he has to go get him. No, I bet but his daughters helped him out. Maybe so. So he typed the following message. It's very short, so I don't mind reading it into the podcast. A heartfelt sadness that I can no longer contribute to the cause. See you all on the other side. You had to read that in a podcast. Now I can't talk. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have enough stuff? Because there's okay. There's a bunch of tissue there. You're all set. Yes. But what a glorious way to go! What a glorious exit message! Yeah. Way to go, John! You're fucking awesome. And of course, Toby Hemingway. I mean, he's he is our scientist. I mean, that was his whole background. Is is. Um, decades of lab work. Uh, he, he worked, in fact, uh, uh, for both of these guys, it was cancer that got him. And Toby worked uh, for ages in cancer research. Yeah. Im- immunology, wasn't it? I'm not sure. And I believe part of our Probably podcast that. that I have with him was about that, was about how it's like um, uh, this, this kind of cancer, it's like, don't you know, it was all approved and it's all out there and it's available, but it's like, don't touch it. It's, it's worse. The it, cancer treatment. The cancer treatment is worse than the cancer. Yeah. So, yeah. I've been there's, a bit emo about this. Yeah. So the, <laughs> about there's, both guys. For both of them, the stories, there's so much more to say, but that's not what today's podcast is about. But it did it, it did end up postponing this podcast, and uh, uh, so <laughs> were, that was one of many reasons. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, it's it's you know, and Christmas happened. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Christmas has to happen. I'm I'm drinking Huckleberry tea that I received on Christmas. From <laughs> what awesome person gave you that? Yeah, what magnificent this, person. This, this big tall guy <laughs> I hang out with. So, mm-hmm. all right. Um, this so so this is this is going to be a, a one of those podcasts where we've got something that we're going to we're going to read it's something right. something that I wrote but I'm I'm quoting Derek Jensen in fact so there's a thread out of Permies Derek Jensen's personal change versus political change right and we introduced this in the last podcast so um, <clears throat> so and, and Paul's going to read what he wrote and and then in 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 this thread, he quotes Derek Jensen quite a bit. So I'll try to uh, do my best to read Derek Jensen's All right, portions, so, the quote. So the thread starts off with, I wish to respond to this, and then I give a link to a uh, an article written by Derek Jensen. And it looks like I wrote this over a year ago. 
And it looks like I wrote this, like, possibly the day that Derek published uh, his article. Wow. You were on it. Damn, I'm good. Huh. Um, it looks like he published it November 10th, and I replied on November 11th. So and something in his title was Forget Shorter Showers. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, he, he's just bla he just likes to blast people. So do we need to well, introduce okay. Derek? Oh, Jensen? I do. I do. Oh, I yeah. write it. Okay. I, and so <clears throat> first, I wish to say that Mr. Jensen is one of our great permaculture leaders. I choose to follow a different permaculture path, but I find his ideas refreshing, bold, and delicious after a diet, a diet of spiral gardens, poorly built cob ovens, and greenhouses in the winter shade. Mr. Jensen's words always make me grow to be a better person. So here, Derek says, Would any sane person think dumpster diving would have stopped Hitler? Or that composting would have ended slavery or brought about the eight-hour workday? Or that chopping wood and carrying water would have gotten people out of Tsarist prisons? Or that dancing naked around a fire would have helped put in place the Voting Rights Act of 1957 or the Civil Rights Act of 1964? Then why now, with all the world at stake, do so many people retreat into these entirely personal, quote, solutions, end quote? Okay. <laughs> I mean, isn't that good? <laughs> I mean, that's so good. Yeah. He's scathing. He is Gaving. But he makes an excellent point. I yeah. mean, oh, the stuff. And then there's a there's a YouTube video of him somewhere uh, where he tells a joke that's something like, "How many environmentalists does it take to change a light bulb?" <laughs> and have you, did you have you seen this video? No. He's like giving a presentation and he he tells this joke and then he's like, two of them have to form a support group and and <laughs> and it's because I think the answer is like eleven. Uh. You know, then two of them have to like start a petition and and then. Uh, uh, you know, uh, four of them have to enter into a, 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 a 11 day debate about, you know, should the light bulb change, you know, or, and, and he talks about all these different things that, you know, people do that really doesn't do anything. So, and, and then in the end, I think the consensus is, is that the light bulb needs to want to change first. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, so, man. So, I can't remember the joke. I'm not doing it justice. Right, right. Uh, but, but you get the gist. Oh, man. And oh, that is, just that one paragraph, I think, is so profound. All right, so here's my response. And while he makes an extremely good point, I do wish to engage him on this point. And my point will be weird. I wish to say that he is right. And at the same time, I wish to propose a point that is almost the opposite and say that that is right, too. In fact, I want to add strength to his point by the words from his book, As the World Burns, 50 Simple Things You Can Do to Stay in Denial. Just the title of the book is amazing. Oh, it's hilarious. Let me just read that one. As so The title of the book is As the World Burns, 50 Simple Things You Can Do to Stay in Denial. In that book, he points out that if everybody in the world did 
all the things that were supposedly better, then it still wouldn't make any tangible difference. I almost cried when I read this because it is so true. Right. I think this is a good point. If we're going to solve all problems globally, or perhaps most problems, then we need to at least come up with a scalable backyard model and then scale it. I know I can do the first part, and I think I've done a fair bit in this space already. And there are some days when I think I might be able to do the second part. I have made a mountain of progress, but there are thousand there are a thousand more mountains to go. And then you quote Derek again, an inconvenient truth helped raise consciousness about global warming. But did you notice that all of the solutions presented had to do with personal consumption, changing light bulbs, inflating tires, driving half as much? It had nothing to do with shifting power away from corporations or stopping the growth economy that is destroying the planet. Even if every person in the United States did everything the movie suggested, U.S. carbon emissions would fall by only 22%. Scientific consensus is that emissions must be reduced by at least 75% worldwide. Okay, so an inconvenient truth, that's the Al Gore movie. Right. Yeah, so. <clears throat> right, and doesn't he mention some of those statistics in his uh, 50 Ways to Stay in Denial book? He does, yeah, he does, yeah. and I, I'm not sure, but I, I hope I've got it embedded in here a little bit later, okay. um, because it's it's so delicious and beautiful and perfect. Yeah. Um, okay, so, therefore, we need more, much more, and... As with nearly everything in permaculture, it isn't going to be just one thing, but a long list. And rather than do 50 things that give us 22%, perhaps we need to explore a list of 100 things that give us 75%. Of course, we're not going to persuade everybody, so we really need to step up the game. All right, now I've embedded this chart, which I'm just using in everything now. Mm-hmm. But um, so often people keep coming up with this whole thing of like uh, uh, our carbon footprint. Right. It's all about our carbon footprint. And so there's this magnificent image that is embedded in the thread mm-hmm. that that shows um, all of the different kinds of things that uh, generate greenhouse gases on the left side of the chart. And so it shows quantity, and then it shows on the right side of the chart which kinds of greenhouse gases. And so, of course, the big one is is carbon dioxide, but there's also in here methane, uh, nitrous oxide, and then a bunch of other little ones. Um, <clears throat> what a what a fan- but the, the the key is is that when we look at all the carbon footprint and who are the great big contributors, uh, the biggest one is. Of, of all of them, the biggest, easily, is electricity and heat. 
Right. And then the next up comes transportation, and then it starts to get small from there. Industry, uh, other fuel combustion, uh, agriculture. So then, you know, there's all these little things on the list. Now, this is just for the United States, which is kind of unfortunate, but I think... Uh, you really need to look at this graphic. I, I can't do it justice right. over an audio format. Right. right. Well, and, and one of the big aha moments I had with permaculture is embedded energy. I really hadn't thought of embedded energy before Toby explained it, as a matter of fact, in my PDC, my permaculture design course. And he was excellent at explaining embedded energy and uh, a lot of that, you know. So, yeah, you have a car, but the embedded energy in the car is what did it take to mine and manufacture all the parts and create that vehicle? So. All right. Let's look at heat. First, there is my article about cutting 87% off of my electric heat bill. Then my stuff about rocket mass heaters. And finally, the possibility to fully eliminate the need for heat with my Wafati stuff. Okay, I just want to real quick point out that it was about, I think, six or seven months ago that we did all the math and we found out that if a person converts from electric heat to heating their space entirely with a rocket mass heater that reduces their carbon footprint the same amount as parking seven cars. Actually, it's more than seven cars. Right. It's like 7.3 cars. Right. Um, the amount of uh, uh, carbon footprint there is in electric heat is massive. Just just crazy. Uh, it's so big that it's like if you have electric heat, then your carbon footprint is like I think 40% bigger. Uh, maybe it's it's 60% bigger than the average. Well, and I just want to comment, too, that I cringed at the idea of burning wood initially just because I didn't know very much. But in proper woodland management, you need to thin the trees. And by thinning the trees, you actually are storing more carbon. And it's it's just, it's kind of counterintuitive for someone who's not involved in woodland management, (laughs) right? Well, you've been living in the Seattle area, you know, and no one burns wood for heat over there so you're you're not witnessing this plus it's like one great big gob everywhere of green jungle yeah. you know and and then um uh, then you come out here to montana and and you see it i mean you you see throughout the state that there are people burning the wood Yes. Throughout the winter, yeah. they, they just go out there and they, they chop down a bunch of trees. Or if they go in the slash piles, yeah, they, they just burn the slash piles. Oh, yeah. All and, the time. And then we meet foresters that are like, you know, eco foresters. They're like, oh, we're so eco. And, and, and it's like they're burning slash piles and they're spraying. Right. Um, but, uh, but even more than that, then it's July and August and there's forest fires. <laughs> so now, basically, my analysis on this is is like, okay, you've got eight million acres over here, and you got two guys that are like, you know, managing it. And by managing it, what we mean is they're doing whatever it takes so that they can eventually go and harvest trees out of it. 
and and then it's like oh lightning it gets hot and there's lightning or who knows what and then there's forest fires and then they call in like 50 guys who go and put the fire out and uh, it's kind of like that's that's not a sustainable model and the thing that i'm advocating is the idea of like let's take every you know 40 acres and put somebody in there put a permie in there and they're going to nurture that 40 acres and they're aware that forest fire could happen and and rather than sending all that carbon up in the atmosphere which they would much rather have in their soils right then they manage it appropriately yeah now the biggest you you're saying something about like your 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 initial reaction to burning wood was oh that doesn't seem very eco right and and that's not necessarily because of the carbon footprint because the carbon footprint's entirely invisible and you don't have no idea what the carbon footprint is right but what you're concerned about is is the smoke i don't know if you've ever been to a community that heats with wood but i've been pointing it out whenever we drive anywhere i point look over there see it see look it at all that black smoke look at this whole <laughs> valley is choked in smoke yeah. and you can see it coming out of the chimney of that house right yeah. there it, it gets bad around here in some areas between the wood stoves that are pouring out the black smoke and the slash piles that are pouring out the black smoke. It's like, gee, why do you want to do that? <laughs> and when I was yeah. a teenager, I lived in La Grande, Oregon, which is a valley totally surrounded by mountains. And uh, uh, the the uh, everybody would heat with wood. And it would be like, oh, wow, in the middle of winter on a cold day. It was it was horrible. Yeah. It was just like you couldn't see 30, 40 feet because of all the smoke. It was like, man, what is this, 1890? Yeah. Well, and, and there's so yeah, – I feel like I side got us off on a sidebar a little no, no, no. bit. You did, and it's a good sidebar. <laughs> and I want to wrap this up. And so now, uh-huh. now we've got like a dozen rocket mass heaters here. And then you go outside and you smell smoke. And where is it coming from? The neighbors, not us. We can have three rocket mass heaters burning, one in the house, one in the office, which is a separate building, and one in the shop down our driveway. And we can have three rocket mass heaters burning. You don't smell any smoke from our property, but you might smell it wafting over from a neighbor's right. or from a neighbor's slash pile. Right, right, right. So, yeah. so we'll have or we'll have no fires burning right and and you'll smell smoke so you know yeah. it's not us cuz right. we're not cuz we're currently riding the heat from the mass yeah and and you know, and you's like where is that smoke coming from and you look around and you can see it Look, there's the neighbor. You can see the smoke pouring out of their chimney. Once in a great while, we'll have a rocket stove that's not quite operating properly, and we'll have a little smoke. And then it's like, oh, that's weird. What's going on? What do we need to fix so it's not smoking? But I... You know, wood is such a renewable resource, and when burned properly, I just... it's. It just makes so much more sense to me now. And there's so much about woodland management where you have this wood to either build with or mulch with or hugel culture with or use as fuel that it, it, it just makes so much more sense than I ever imagined. And now so many people, I think, in the Permies forums and in the permaculture world are more familiar with coppicing species and with, I mean, you know, when you prune certain things, they grow way faster. And it's like the whole holistic management or paddock 
automatic shift system, the more you cut certain things and prune and, and cut them back, the more they grow. And it, I mean, if you, I had a shrub I was trying to prune to keep out of the eaves of the house, and that ends up being a bad thing <laughs> because you never keep up with it because it just keeps growing more and more after you prune it. So you can do that with coppice, coppicing woods, wood products, you know, coppicing wood, um, woodland management. It actually creates more fuel for you, and it's healthier for the whole system, more sustainable. Well, and and <clears throat> when they take this wood, rather than just putting it into a big slash pile, yeah, you could you could burn it far more cleanly in a rocket mass heater, right? And and but but for, instead of putting it in a slash pile, I mean, we've got a list of like twenty different things you can do with that. Yeah. And so we're building the junk pole fences, we're building wafatis, we're we're doing all kinds of things while main, maintaining this what what they believe to be you know sustainable forestry, right. uh, and their idea of sustainable forestry still burns the slash piles, and um, uh, and then of course. They're not doing it on the scale to do millions and millions of acres yet, although they're planning on it, and they're just going to dump, I, I don't know, billions of dollars into that, and and they're, it's just like this never-ending thing. So uh, I I kind of feel like the, the last point I want to make is like when we drive around in this neighborhood and we see other cars, or I'm, I'm sorry, when we see other homes uh-huh. in the fall... I mean, <laughs> nearly every house you can see at their house, they've got like eight cords of wood ready to go for the winter. This enormous mountain of wood. And, and here we are. We've got a home about the same size as those homes. We don't even have curtains here. We don't have a front, uh, an enclosed front porch, which is very standard. Right. And, and so, because it helps to keep the heat in. Yeah. Yeah. A mudroom. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and, and so there's all these things that we don't have that would make our home more efficient heat wise. <clears throat> but it's looking like we might finish the winter having burned only half a quart of wood for the whole winter. Um, and on top of that, I've got other ideas on how to optimize our rocket mass heater. Yeah. And, and out here in the rural areas of Montana, it's just normal that people get firewood permits to go into the uh, U.S. government forest land and they gather their firewood. You know, that's just a big part of summer for a lot of people in this these rural areas. And I, you and know, the, that's the just so foreign older, to me growing up outside a city. And the, and the ones that are older, the couples that are older and they're, you know, retired or something that, that they just buy it. They just, right. they'll just have somebody deliver the wood yeah. and maybe chop it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so, all right. All right. The key is, is that I think it's, it's natural for people to feel resistance, but, but the, the carbon footprint factor which you just you can't see it like oh look there goes some carbon from that house over there they're doing electric heat look at all the carbon <laughs> you know and, and and carbon is something we need in our soils we need to get it and then that helps to lock it up mm-hmm. so the, the the profound and amazing thing is is that it has been measured mm-hmm. and and a rocket mass heater uses an incredibly tiny speck of carbon in, and uh, to heat your home and electric heat 
it's going to use about seven and a half cars worth of, of carbon footprint. All right. Yeah. <laughs> big, big little sidebar there. Okay, back to reading this. I have written about and demonstrated many paths to cut overall electric usage while living a more luxuriant life. And that's an important thing, too. When you look at all that stuff from Al Gore and all the stuff that Derek is pointing out right now, it's all like, okay, how can I torture myself for the sake of the planet? How how can I do things? Like, I'll just drive half as much. And it's like, okay, you got your day job. How are you going to now drive half as much? And it's kind of like, well, I'll take the bus once in a while. And, it, and it's like... A lot of I, a lot of times that doesn't work. Oh, I tried that where I was living, and um, it took me two hours one way to take the bus. That was and and when I drove, it was forty <coughs> forty minutes one way. So to take the bus, it was a big sacrifice because yeah, I, I couldn't read on the bus. It made me car sick. <laughs> and I didn't have, and I didn't have, like nowadays, everybody has their own little earbuds and their own listen to podcasts, right? Yeah. Or music or stories. But um, I didn't have that back then when I tried the bus. And, I, and so I was stuck, couldn't read. Right. I mean, it gets, it, it's not as easy as they make it sound. And, and so then a lot of the stuff I'm trying to do is rather than like, oh, just sacrifice, is it's like, can I, can I make an environment for people that it can be duplicated such that, and this is what I'm trying to do at the lab, is that people will live here and then um, they just don't want to go anywhere. They, you know, they've got all their food. They've got their home. They've got their energy. They've got everything that they need. They've got their entertainment. They've got community. And it's like, hey, you can drive away from here and go to town whenever you want. And then it turns out that about once a month is all they want. And then when they do go, they tend to go in a group with other people and um, for fun, not because they have to, not because they're trying to be efficient or anything like that, but for fun. And and so I think that that's an enormous solution to a lot of this. Well, yeah, and, and recent studies have shown that living in cities – People are less happy in cities, and I forget where I read this recently. They're less happy in cities and urban environments as they are out in a more rural or country environment. And a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of people who are interested in homesteading and permaculture are thinking, duh. (laughs) Yeah. But there are a lot of um, permaculture advocates of urban permaculture like toby's new book permaculture city Hmm. and um but but people are are less happy in an urban environment generally 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 and i and i think that there's unhappiness that happens in certain rural communities as well sure and uh and i think that uh, there's going to be a that one's going to be a tough one yeah because i think there are ways to live in a city and have it be lovelier. But at the same time, I think that if any time you live in a city that uh, if, if you've got a quarter of an acre or less, which is a quarter of an acre is a standard city lot, then, you know, you have eliminated an angle of safety. You are dependent upon the system. And then when you see all the political things happening, then it, it freaks you the fuck out. And how can you do anything but like say, damn it, stop risking my life 
with your crazy, stupid, dumb fuckery. And, and that would develop an ulcer. Whereas if you live, don't, don't move that. I'm going to okay. read that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so whereas if you live in the country and, and you can have acres and you've developed a permaculture system, then it's like this whole, when they go and they do dumb fuckery, then you kind of sit on your porch and point and say, hey, look at the dumb fuckery. <laughs> oh, those dumb fucks. They're going to kill themselves with that shit. <laughs> and so, that, but you've got your resilience and your safety. And, and so that's, all right. <clears throat> more, more resilience. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And all right. So I'm going to read that last sentence again, just because it's part of a paragraph. Uh, I've written about and demonstrated many paths to cut over Overall electric, electric usage while living a more luxuriant life. It is not perfect, but a very large improvement. Further, I would like to point out that a lot of people, when they switch to PV energy, so photovoltaic, solar, solar, yeah, find ways to reduce their electric consumption by 95%. While people that are on the grid are sure they are cutting their electric consumption by 60% and they are really cutting it by something like 5%. The moral of the story is that people do learn these things. Transportation. I have many facets to this. At the top of the list is to paint a picture of a life path that eliminates the daily job commute. I advocate residual income streams. Further, I am exploring the space of getting 20 people to live under one roof without stabbing each other. Such a path could dramatically reduce the need for vehicles. Further still, if 90% of the food is grown at home, that eliminates some trips to the grocery store, which, on a large scale, reduces some food transportation costs. Of course, exploring paths of reducing overall consumption of stuff also reduces transportation costs, as well as the section labeled industry. Now, later I'm going to talk about another chart, which kind of uh, breaks things down. And shows that our footprint, the average American footprint is 60 tons. And I believe that 60 tons per household, 60 uh-huh. tons of carbon per year. And no. that more than half of that is indirect. And so I love the idea that this chart saddles each family with not only their direct carbon footprint, but all the, cause a lot of people, when you try to talk to them about carbon footprint, they're like, yeah, man, but you know, people, they hardly create any, you know, carbon footprint. It's all from industry, man. You gotta go after those fucking industry people. And, and my, my response to that is, is that the industry wouldn't be there if people weren't consuming all that stuff. Exactly. And so it's, it's, I love the idea that the full footprint is responsible of every household. And and then it's like of all the stuff that you buy, all the stuff that you consume, and it had all this transportation stuff and all this manufacturing stuff, and it's like food is more than half of that. And so it's like it, it turns out it's you know so Jeff Lawton has that phrase like all the world's problems can be solved in a garden or something like that. It it turns out that there is a huge amount of truth to that. 
And and in fact, as I go through this list, I believe at some point I, I make the point that if you grow a garden and you give a lot of food to your neighbors or sell it or whatever, then um, you've actually that's a, that's a great path to to take you to zero carbon footprint rather quickly. Yeah, and you've highlighted that in your Wheaton Eco Scale, all the you know the amount of carbon per um, household for each eco-scale person. You've got a little sign. Olaf made an awesome little sign for each of those. I don't know if we've mentioned it in the podcast, but for the Wheaton eco-scale, Olaf made this amazing graphic. And then uh, while he was making it, he sent me some emails asking me some questions. And I kind of got into this habit of like I expanded the Wheaton eco-scale on a couple of points. Like one was is I think I, I put in carbon footprint. Mm. And I think somewhere on level six your carbon footprint is zero, whereas like at level zero, it's 60, and at level one, it's 59. That's right. At level one, you've made hardly any difference at all. (laughs) (laughs) So you get far enough down, and it's zero, but then you get past that, and now you're like at negative 200, negative 2,000. It's like you're, you're changing things on such a massive level. Right, right. From teaching and helping encourage other people to reduce their carbon footprint, that's how you get yours into the negative. Right, right, right. Okay. <clears throat> da, 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 da. Okay, now you might notice that this chart says U.S., so it unfortunately leaves out the processes where trees, which are mostly carbon, are destroyed, usually through burning. Uh, dominantly in tropical areas. Of course, this problem happens with the U.S. also, but I think I recall Alan Savory once saying that the process of converting tree carbon to carbon in the air accounts for more than half of our problem greenhouse gases problem. (laughs) I wrote this. I'm a poet. It rhymes, sort of. So naturally, a powerful tool in this space is to convert carbon dioxide back into trees as much as possible. Step one would be to do what we can in our backyards, homesteads, and farms. Step two would be to tackle the tropical areas where this is the greatest problem. And you've got notes written all over this. Right. Willie Smith. <coughs> Willie Smith is doing this. I mean, he has nurseries um, where he's propagating trees to reforest the tropical areas. And, of course, he has that epic TED Talk <clears throat> about increasing the rainfall in Borneo. Um, from all the trees he's planted in areas that were cleared. And he, he, it may seem counterintuitive yet again, but he flies around the world. He travels almost 300 days a year. Um, but he, what he's doing is he's, he's working with political leaders around the country. He's working with the nurseries he has around the country, around the world. He's working with the nurseries he has, I don't even know where, and he's working on getting more and more and more tree propagation going so that these trees can be planted and all of this area reforested. And he doesn't just work with the forest system. He layers all the different systems in what he's doing to... um, 
re recreate sustainable systems. He integrates animal systems, people systems, economic systems, housing systems, uh, you know, and he's a big proponent of the rocket mass heaters, came out to here, Wheaton Labs, to one of our workshops, and he he wants sustainable systems that work for the people, work for the orangutans, work for the animals, work for the forest, uh, so that it will continue and it will um, be permaculture, right? He's, did, I miss, <clears throat> did I miss something there? <laughs> he's he's teaching a massive scale of people, and and yeah. he is. Uh, because he's an elegant speaker and an elegant dude who speaks 40 languages, then, then yeah, he just, uh, uh, he's of great influence to a lot of high level decision makers. Yes. And, and so he's doing what I could never do. Um, and, and, uh, uh, plus, and in that TED talk, which is from what, 10 years ago or something, some incredible long time. I mean, he had uh, a 20,000 acre plot, but my impression now is that he's working on a scale of millions of acres and, uh, uh, doing things, you know, just, just huge. And, and his more recent uh, talks at, uh, Permaculture Voices One, I thought were just like, Wow, next generation over his own stuff. Right. So profound, so powerful. Right. Way beyond just forestry. <laughs> Way beyond all the systems that make it work. So. All right, I'm going to go back to reading this. <clears throat> of course, we are back to the issue of less than 1% of the population doing this versus everybody doing this. But the first step is to clean up our own yard. The second step is to paint a picture that says, if you use this technique, you triple your profit. Right. I I think that's... uh, Okay, and then here's what Derek Jensen said. He's not saying it in response to stuff. This is me just quoting him. Because I want to say more stuff. Of course. Or, let's talk water. We so often hear that the world is running out of water. People are dying from lack of water. Rivers are dewatered from lack of water. <laughs> because of this, we need to take shorter showers. See the disconnect? Because I take showers, I'm responsible for drawing down aquifers? Well, no. More than 90% of the water used by humans is used by agriculture and industry. The remaining 10% is split between municipalities and actual living, breathing individual humans. Collectively, municipal golf courses use as much water as municipal human beings. People, both human people and fish people, aren't dying because the world is running out of water. They're dying because the water is being stolen. Okay, let's talk water. (laughs) If we grow our own food without using water, see my stuff about replacing irrigation with permaculture, then we reduce the demand on ag. Further, a lot of the ag folks that are using so much water are paying about 90% of their gross income for that water. If we can show them a path that can reduce or eliminate their water use, that converts directly to profit. Golf courses. 
There are ways to have a sharp-looking turf using zero water. It has been done. As for industry, I think it would be good to explore industry that is a huge water consumer, with a strong focus on water drawn from ancient aquifers, and that water is not replaced. After all, if an industry, such as raising cattle, draws water from a creek, and then the water is returned to the creek, and the water leaving the property is cleaner than it arrived, I think that doesn't count. Yeah. Okay, now, we could go on and talk about how to save your own water and stuff like that, but but he's right. I mean, the amount of water that we save, and it's important that we save our own water, and, and if nothing else, there are a lot of people that have water bills of like $400 a month, and they live alone. And they're like, you know, and I'm not even watering my yard. And I kind of wonder, like, how the fuck are you using that much water? But they're in areas where water is crazy expensive. So there's huge benefit to exploring ways to just reduce your own water footprint just for the sake of getting that water bill from $400 a month down to $40 a month. Right. And and it's interesting that we're talking about this because we're planning a trip in January of 2017 to a few different communities and... Three places want you to give your talk replacing irrigation with permaculture. So uh, it's it, it's becoming more and more needed, learning how to do this. I, I think the industry stuff is interesting, um, and it makes me want to look at where a lot of the water is going in industry. And again, I think as consumers, not just shorter showers, Derek Jensen is correct, but there are ways to do shorter showers too, which we've talked about in past podcasts. But looking at industry, if you're looking at being a consumer, I remember decades ago when there was a debate over what's the better shopping bag, paper bag or plastic bag. And there were actually environmentalists who were advocating the plastic bag because it didn't require water in the manufacture. Paper products require boatloads of water in the manufacturing process. It's it's hugely water intensive. So if you are thinking, okay, paper is better than plastic because it won't pollute our oceans and endanger our wildlife. There is some of that, but the best thing is something reusable. So, um, you know, the idea of even if you get a, are in an urban area and get a lot of takeout, you know, a lot of people are starting to bring their own containers just so that they're not part of these disposable containers that are manu- part of the industry sucking up a lot of this water and not returning it to aquifers. But as you described, with a cattle system or an animal system or an agriculture system where the water is returned to the landscape, um, that's just so much more sustainable. Uh, yeah. And and there, <laughs> they've had a deluge of rain in California just recently, and it's flooded the streets because they have no... Systems to capture the flow. They don't capture the flow there. Everything's cement in these urban areas in Southern California. And, and they're constantly in drought mode and such a water crisis. And then when it, they do get a deluge, it just runs off because of all the cement. Right. They don't have permaculture systems to be a sponge and soak it up. 
This podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.